A very existence depends on this. Black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but it's undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another edition of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African-American health from some of the nation's top doctors and is sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project. All right, welcome to this week's edition of the Wellness Watch and also Black Doctor Speak podcast. Our special guest, who we're fortunate to have, is Dr. Kim Rhodes. She's an associate professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at UCSF, director of the Office of Community Engagement, and associate director of Community Outreach and Engagement, UCSF Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center. Is that enough credential? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to our program. Um, before we start up to our discussion, I would like to say that Dr. Rhodes is one of the most important physicians in our area and perhaps in the country because she has been able to merge both an academic career and a community engagement onto the same person. And that's definitely not easy. Uh, she's done a tremendous job of that, especially since the pandemic started. Dr. Rhodes, welcome to our program. Thank you so much for having me. All right. The CDC on Monday released some new guidelines. Uh, there are people asking me what they've said. Uh, I'm not sure about everything, but give us your interpretation of what they have, what they said. Sure. I think the, the easiest way to summarize it is that the guidance for COVID mitigation and prevention um, as schools reopen have been relaxed. Um, and by that, you know, just to really uh, hit some of the fine points of, of what is now being recommended, that includes no routine testing um, at school. Some schools were having testing every week, twice a week, um, or recommending that it, it be done on a routine or regular cadence. That is no longer happening. It's not recommended for people who are asymptomatic. Testing is only really going to be targeted for when there are outbreaks. Um, there is no indoor mask mandate that went away um, in California that went away in March. Um, so that will not be reinitiated as uh, the kids start back to school. Uh, there is a new recommendation that if you have been exposed, you do not need to quarantine. Um, and so you can just kind of go on with your life. They do recommend that you wear a mask if you've been exposed um, and then if you test positive, there is a, a now kind of more firm demarcation of saying that you only need to isolate for five days, whether you're vaccinated or not. Um, and then after five days, if you're feeling um, and you haven't had a fever for 24 hours, then you can get back out into the world. Um, they do recommend that people wear a mask um, with that. But that's been cut down from our traditional started out as 14 days of isolation, then cut back to 10 days of isolation, now at five days of isolation. Um, and then there are no guidelines for what ventilation should look like inside of a classroom. So there's no, um, there's no check on that. We could say we're, we're ventilating well, or we have HEPA filters, or the windows are open, but we could be using um, CO2 monitors to, to understand how effective that ventilation 
those ventilation maneuvers are, but that is also um, not at all required. Is this like a case if I give up, uh, you know, uh, you and I both have felt for a long time that even before they relaxed some of these recommendations, that they were premature and certainly not good for communities of color. Um, what do you think about this group of recommendations? Um, I do think it is it is um, a bit of demoralization, um, but I think it's been in the works for a long time. I think this is just uh, this is taking us one step closer to a point where we say, okay, everything just back to normal, and there's an acceptable level of of um, infection and death um, that's going to be okay with us. So we we'll just you know move through it and accept that that people are going to get infected, get hospitalized, and die. Um, and it's kind of like boiling a frog, right? This has been happening very slowly over time. So the changes don't look dramatic compared to the last set of recommendations. But if you compare them to the beginning of the pandemic, they are radically different. And I do think there is a, a, a bit of, you know, throwing the hands up and, and giving up. Uh, but I also think that there are business interests who feel that, they need people to get back to living their normal lives in order to keep the economic machine, you know, grinding away. Unfortunately, that comes at the expense of, of communities of color who have, ha have had the highest rates of infection as well as death um, throughout this pandemic. And it, it also just completely obscures the fact that 400 to 500 people per day are dying of COVID in the United States. And I don't, I, I'm, I'm not sure of any other disease where we would simply throw up our hands and, and accept that. But what's happening instead is we're just not talking about that. And so over time, just like boiling the frog, turning the heat up slowly over time, the frog doesn't realize it's being boiled. We are being inched closer and closer to um, a society where there will be no active or intentional um, mitigation or attempts to prevent the spread of COVID. Yeah, so it's, it just seems like uh, we're just going to accept uh, certain casualties in order to move forward in what was considered a more normal um, relationship with disease. Um, I'm recommending to what little following I might have that, uh, you know, you have to take care of yourself now. It's every person for themselves. Uh, I would stay away from uncontrolled crowds. Uh, you know, I would stay away from situations where, you know, uh, people have uh, been unvaccinated. Uh, I think you, you know, something, I think that my mask is now my permanent garment. If I go naked, I'm wearing that mask. And so consequently, <laughs> consequently, I'm trying to advise uh, people who are uh, trying to decide what to do uh, to not relax. Um, because I went to Atlanta to a major medical convention. No one wore masks in Atlanta. I just have friends who came from Las Vegas. No one is wearing a mask. But if you're listening to us, then you better take that mask seriously. Uh, because nobody knows where this virus is is headed. What are they saying? What are they saying to the street? I mean, what is the street saying about vaccinating children, especially infants and toddlers? 
So we are not doing well in the zero um, uh, six months to four years old category here in the Bay Area. Um, in San Francisco, we're only at about 9%. In Alameda County, we're at about 7% um, of that age group that is fully vaccinated. Um, the word on the street, I think, for the kids, of course, it trickles down from the parents. And we have been conducting an attitude survey. We're trying to track attitudes across the Bay Area uh, since the lifting of the indoor mask mandate in late February, early March. Um, and people are, they're confused. Uh, the guidelines keep changing. They're exhausted. They don't understand because we don't have other vaccines like this. Why do I need a third vaccine, a fourth vaccine? Does this vaccine really work? Um, and so the fatigue that we're seeing with adult vaccination, I think, is translating um, to to the kids. Now, in the in the the five to eleven group, we're actually doing a bit better. We're somewhere in the sixty to seventy percent um, of those groups are vaccinated. I think part of the difference is the community uh, on the ground efforts that have been happening all across the Bay Area where community-based organizations, coalitions like Emoja Health um, are able to provide vaccine out in community, on your street, on your block, in the park down the street from your house. That's not happening for the zero to four-year-olds. And I think that that is going to have an impact on, on how rapidly we're able to disseminate these vaccines. I think that really goes to show the level of comfort that people feel getting their vaccine from a local community-based organization. Um, and, and as opposed to in doctor's offices where really the focus of the zero to four-year-old uh, vaccination effort um, has been centered and focused. Well, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about is calling a summit of doctors who take, or providers who take care of children. I mean, we don't even know how to message this to parents because 9%, uh, 6%, 9%, that's not bad. Nationwide, it's less than 4%. And one of the problems is we see a lot of providers who don't believe in, in, in vaccinating mm -hmm. children. So uh, those of us who are concerned about our children and who realize that uh, any death is unacceptable, uh, COVID is probably in the top 10 uh, causes of death in children right now. So you're going to tell me 1,400 children is a lot, a lot of ch children, but if it's your child, then you, you know, we really have an issue. And so I think we need to get together and figure out what is the messaging going to look like. You talk about long hauling. We're going to have to long haul this message because a lot of the people interested in initially vaccinating people have gotten out of the business. Now that the health equity money is starting to dry up. That's right. And so the only thing that's going to happen uh, differently is that those of us who care for children and who have earned the trust of parents are going to continue to describe stories. I mean, the story I tell is that if I saw, if I were in my office 25 years ago, I would see 60 to 70 patients on a, in, during the winter. Uh, now if I see 20, 25, that's a big day, and most of those are well-child visits. And it's because of one thing, and that's vaccines. And so we have to keep telling stories, keep on top of it. And I hope that you uh, will work with us to try to find out what messages is working not only here, but across the country. We may have to get the grandparents involved. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's one of the secret weapons. But and this, is, this, is a real, this is a real issue. Uh, a couple of things about vaccinations. 
in the fall, they're going to come out the ultimate Omicron vaccine. Every time there's a new booster vaccine, less and less people take advantage of it. And so consequently, uh, it will be interesting to those of us who have immunologic backgrounds, it's going to be interesting to see where this virus goes from here, because we really don't know. And I right. think we really don't know. And, and so let's let's move a, a bit. Let's change the dynamic. Can I can I can I just inject one um, ray of hope? <laughs> um, I actually believe that when the Omicron specific vaccine comes out, that we will see the same level of boosting as we saw with the first booster that was announced, because people believe they're getting something different versus with the second booster that was recommended for 50 and over. You're getting the same thing. Why do I need it again? Hard to convince people. So I do think there will be a demand for the Omicron-specific booster. Well, I certainly hope so. Uh, but some of the resistance I'm seeing means we're going to still have a job to do there. Uh, now, let's move on to talk about uh, long haulers disease. And before we do that, let me reintroduce my guest, Dr. Kim Rhodes, who is a professor at the University of California, but also a person who is out and about in the community, uh, probably more than she wants to be, but more than she has to, <laughs> as she has to be. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the long hauler disease. Uh, obviously, um, most people understand that certain subset of people uh, who have had COVID, um, vaccine or otherwise, do develop problems, pulmonary, cardiac, uh, mental issues uh, that in, are incapacitating in many instances. Um, what are we learning about long hauler disease, who's most at risk, uh, and is there management? So, um, yes, big questions. Um, what I would say is that right now we're still, we don't actually know who's at risk. That's the biggest, I think, fundamental problem that we're going to be facing, um, especially as we lift um, guidance to prevent COVID. If we could let people know who would be at risk for having residual long-term chronic symptoms after recovering from COVID, I think that would motivate some people um, to mitigate and to try to prevent, you know, right here today. Um, so one of the things that, that um, and, and so I just will say to follow on that, since we don't know who's at risk, what we also don't know are what are the treatments because we don't understand this virus, which means we don't know why people get these lingering symptoms. We don't know if there are parts of the virus that are still harbored in the body. We don't know if the virus has just gone dormant and might you know, <laughs> sort of uh, reinvigorate itself later in time. We don't know any of that. This, this virus is still new to us. I know we're sick of it and it's been three years, but the virus itself, Three years um, is a very short time, so we don't know a lot about it. So there aren't treatments that that uh, that we know work. Um, so what is actually happening right now is, um, and I'm I'm part of this uh, larger consortium, is that the the uh, congressional leadership, and probably because they have people around them who are impacted by long COVID, put together over a billion dollars to create an initiative called Recover. Um, and you can find that online. Uh, it's Recover COVID, or NIH might be one of your search terms. Um, and they've put over a billion dollars into 15 centers across the country 
um, for the next four to five years to really try to figure out long COVID. There is a center at UCSF and there's one at Stanford in terms of what's available in the Bay Area. Um, and we're gonna be looking at uh, some of the Bay Area counties to try to, first of all, and this is unique to San Francisco's initiative, we are going to be asking for stories. We want to hear what people are experiencing. Um, and then we want to get a true counting of how many people in the Bay Area uh, are suffering from long COVID. Because if we know who had COVID, who now has long COVID, we can actually give a more accurate accounting of who's at risk, what percentage of people are going to be suffering, and what kind of symptoms they're actually complaining of. So that's the first phase of the study is just trying to understand, you know, how prevalent is it? The second part of the study would have folks sign up. Um, there's a small amount of, of monetary compensation and they would be part, become part of a, a long-term clinic where they would go in and symptoms would be checked over time. That way we can start to document how long do people lose their sense of smell and taste for? How long do you have joint pain and, and muscle aches for? You know, Does the anxiety and depression resolve over time? We don't know any of that. So there's a clinic where you'll be followed chronically. There will be, um, depending on what level you want to participate, some um, samples or specimens that will be taken like urine or blood, um, looking for um, evidence of virus or ev evidence of ongoing inflammation. Um, and so that's the second part of, of the study, which for the rest of the country, they're only doing the second part. They're not asking community to participate, to tell stories, to, um, to, to help understand how prevalent it actually is. So you could actually access the study at Stanford as well. Um, currently, there is a clinic that's been going for the past two years uh, at San Francisco General that is seeing a big chunk of um, patients with long COVID in uh, San Francisco and from across the Bay Area. Uh, and so the folks who are there are the people who took care of HIV at the beginning of the HIV epidemic, and they understand the impacts on communities of color of these, um, of these infectious diseases. So there are opportunities to, to consult with physicians, but to be really honest and frank, the, the information about what to do about it, it hasn't come forward yet because we haven't fully characterized what is long COVID, who gets it, who's at risk, and how often it happens. And then with all these variants, we'll be asking, is there more long COVID that came out of the Delta surge? Is there more long COVID that came out of the Omicron surge where we told everybody Omicron was milder, right? We don't know. Is there an impact of vaccination on long COVID? There is some evidence that getting vaccinated reduces the chances of getting long COVID. So these are things that we can only find out by actually hearing from people who are um, who are living with living with long haulers disease now. Well, you know, one of the things that bothers me is that African Americans were disproportionately impacted by the um, by the COVID nineteen infection. Uh, you've got this billion dollars. Um, what assures uh, our community that um, we'll get a, our, our share of the resources? Uh, that go into either studying it or treating it or managing it. I think mm -hmm. a lot of, there's going to be a lot of uh, trying to, to figure out what the placebo pieces are. But mm -hmm. that's what bothers me, is that we disproportionately impacted by the problem. Are we going to get a disproportionate number of resources to handle our problems? 
Well, so part of what we do in Emoja Health by convening all of these organizations together to really hold public health and, and uh, healthcare institutions accountable is moving toward that. And I, I just want to actually commend the, the research team in San Francisco, because as I said, there are 15 of these centers across the country. San Francisco is the only one that is explicitly including community engagement. And, it, and the, the proposal was written with, um, with Umoja as part of um, you know, the pitch to say, we actually have these communications and connections with the community. This is an opportunity for us not only to learn um, about long COVID, but also to be feeding the resources back. So in terms of how we guarantee that we get our disproportionate share here in, um, in the Bay Area, it's folks like myself and Dr. Karina Marquez, who works in the Latino community, and then my co-conspirators in, in moving toward health equity, Dr. Noha uh, Abalada from Roots Community Health Center, and Dr. Donna who works with Alameda Health System. So there are watchdogs. And I, I think what has emerged out of these um, coalitions that have formed during the pandemic is the realization that you need a watchdog because when the status quo is allowed to flow on, you know, uninterrupted, what we see is discrimination, disparity, disenfranchisement, um, and, and um, you know, isolation and otherization from accessing care. So I'm making a commitment in being part of this initiative, um, making sure that it actually reflects like whatever we put out uh, reflects the, the, um, what the community has said they want to see. Um, and when the community asks for information, I'm going to be dipping into the resources at UCSF to say who's got this information because we need to bring it out to the community. Um, because the national consortium is, is uh, developing and publishing studies all the time. One of the things that we're gonna do is we have put together a community advisory board for the long COVID study. We'll be meeting tomorrow. We've got representation from San Mateo County, San Francisco, Alameda County, and Santa Clara County, largely uh, black led and Latino led organizations um, to be giving advice to the research team at UCSF. Uh, but also to be getting the information hot off the presses. So as the national consortium is discovering things, we're going to be bringing that right into that community advisory and with the idea and hope that they will be disseminating that out to their networks and their constituencies across the Bay Area. Yeah, yeah I think you, you would have, we have to recognize uh, and understand that the Bay Area is unique in lots of ways. <laughs> the things that you're doing, uh, other communities... Should, might be doing, but probably since we have a national audience, most of our audience has nothing like this. No coordination, no long hauler place to go, uh, not even an understanding of the problem. And so it's going to be incumbent upon national organizations like uh, the coalitions that you uh, put together in the National Coalition, the National Medical Association, Black Nurses. Uh, if we want these kinds of resources available to most of the African-Americans in this country. Okay. Uh, I think San Francisco always has its fair share of innovators and people willing, like you willing to kind of step out on a limb and put together these very creative, innovative, and resource-rich programs. But most of the people listening to us nationally are not going to have access to that. 
what do they do? Well, one of the things that, that um, it, you know, with my co-conspirators who've been talking about and, and really appreciate even this platform is we need a bigger platform because the information that we're sharing, you know, the, the COVID rates, for example, or the monkeypox uh, concerns may be local, but the, the management of the disease, mitigation, how to keep yourself safe, that actually could be disseminated nationally. We just don't have the platform for it. But I think that that's going to be the way to motivate folks to, to look and see, you know, what, what really got me excited about Emoja Health is when we first started delivering um, COVID-19 testing services, I just kept hearing in the back of my mind the sentence, look what can happen when Black people come together. Look at the power, the ingenuity, um, the perseverance. We just... We're smart people and we're clever. And when we're together, we are so powerful. So I think that that might be um, motivating and stimulating if that if people had uh, an opportunity to get a glimpse of what we're doing here in, in the Bay Area. Um, it doesn't mean everybody can do it you know, in the same way. I do think one key ingredient is having uh, someone who's on the inside or who trained inside of the system so that they know some of the secrets because once you open the secrets to the community, the community has a lot more to say about it um, than just what they're feeling while they're sort of on the outside. So I think that there's an opportunity to spread this kind of organizing and bringing folks together. It, it could really happen anywhere that there's access to Zoom or social media, streaming, um, and, and those kinds of tools. Yeah, well, that, that's the one thing that we do do. We do talk to a large constituency nationwide, and we talk to them often. Uh, and we believe in consistency of messaging. We depend upon people like you uh, and Emoji to craft those messages so that we're all saying the same thing. But I do think that uh, too often in academic centers, from my perspective, uh, we hide. You know what I mean? We hide in these centers and we're not out there like you are. I mean, you, you don't realize how unique you are. But I'm seeing an increasingly larger pool of Black people within academic situations willing to cross that barrier, you know, that right. cross, cross the stream on the other side of the tracks called the community mm -hmm. uh, and put together programs. And I hope our discussion today will certainly motivate them. It would not be uh, complete if we did not talk about the ever-present monkeypox. <laughs> uh, give me your take Oh, monkeypox, and maybe explain a bit about what it is. The people, where has it been? In monkeys? Uh, so um, it is, uh, so monkeypox, I think, has captured everybody's attention because visually it looks terrible. Sometimes it makes me wish that COVID had something that looked dramatic so that people would be more motivated around it. Um, but I'll say off the top, monkeypox is, is generally not going to be killing four to 500 people, you know, um, a day like COVID is. So it, we, um, it was first described in 1958 um, and it was discovered in experimental monkeys. So the idea that it's out like wild monkeys in the jungle, that's not it. It was discovered in monkeys that were kept in the lab um, for lab experimentation. I think the first case in, an, in a human was in the 60s um, and it is largely found in West Africa um, so this is kind of the first time that it has gone global, and that's what's got everybody um, up in arms. 
Um, it is a pox virus, uh, similar to smallpox, um, but of course not as deadly. Um, and uh, what you end up getting in terms of symptoms is um, first it starts with a what we call a prodrome. So you have like a flu-like illness, but your COVID test is negative. That's the typical story. Um, and then seven or so days later, you can start to get these um, these. Uh, blisters, if you will, they kind of look like chicken pox, um, except instead of itching as much, they mostly hurt. The root of transmission is largely skin to skin contact. I know there's been a lot of attention about men who have sex with men and people in the trans and LGBTQ community. Um, but the reality is we don't have conclusive evidence yet that this is a sexually transmitted infection. So typically not found in semen and vaginal swabs, um, but we don't know for sure. So maybe it could be sexually transmitted. However, the reason that I'm making this, this distinction is because there's been so much focus on the LGBTQ community. I'm haunted by what happened with HIV, where we did the same thing. And then there were all these women who were infected with HIV, but we ignored them because they're not gay or they're not men who have sex with men. So People really need to understand that close skin-to-skin uh, -skin contact, especially with somebody who has uh, sores that can take up to 21 days to crust over, they're infectious until they are until the skin has healed over. So hugging, having close contact, sharing bedding, sharing towels, um, uh, or any other kind of linens, clothing um, can spread can spread monkeypox. Uh, well, let me ask you one thing. Do you think eventually that almost everyone will have to be vaccinated for monkeypox, just like with COVID-19? Um, I'm not convinced of that. Um, I, I do think that, that we will see as the schools open up and as the CDC guidelines around uh, reducing COVID spread are so relaxed, I think we're going to see monkeypox actually outbreak that happens in the schools. It's hard to keep kids apart, especially once you take the masks off, you know, you feel like it's a free for all, especially with little kids. So I do think we're going to see some outbreaks in schools, um, but I don't think we're going to see this widespread um, uh, kind of infection like we've seen with uh, community spread, like we've seen with COVID. Um, right now, it's the vaccinations are focused on um, high risk communities and populations um, but that is partly because there are only two manufacturers of the vaccine, of the Genios vaccine that the U.S. is using. There are only two manufacturers. They're in Denmark. They're not, it's not Pfizer. It's not Moderna. It's not these big, gigantic labs. So they can't really keep up with the demand. So there's not enough uh, vaccine. So really, the prevention piece is really important here because everybody's not going to get access to vaccine um, and I, I don't believe that uh, we will eventually all have to be vaccinated, at least not within the first year of seeing this pandemic. I do not believe that it's going to spread the way COVID has spread. Well, Dr. Kim Rose, thank you so much for taking time from what is obviously a very busy schedule to share with us what's actually happening. One of the things I like talking to you about is it keeps me from having to read so much because you stuck up in these things. So anytime you feel the need to uh, express uh, uh, your opinion about something uh, within the uh, communities, or, or even in your specialty, uh, we forget you're a cancer specialist. Uh, <laughs> so so uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
All right, that ends this edition of the podcast, Black Doctors Speak uh, and the Wellness Watch. I always remember, as we always conclude, health is your biggest asset. For more information, go to our website at aawellnessproject.org, aawellnessproject.org, or blackdoctor.org for more information on COVID-19, the new vaccine, and the monkeypox. If you enjoyed our show, please remember to hit the subscribe button so that new episodes are delivered directly to you every week, as well as rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Take care, everyone.